Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Digital, an innovative exhibition at Underground Atlanta, explores the design and research behind digital art. We'll hear from the show's curator and two of the artists about creating these works and how art is no longer confined to display on walls and galleries. Also, our series of local artists, in their own words, speaking of the arts, today features abstract expressionist Dawn Trimble. First, this year marks a literary milestone, the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses by the Irish author James Joyce. The writer T.S. Eliot declared Ulysses to be the most important expression of our time and from which none of us can escape. Perhaps you read the novel as part of a class or simply have encountered some of the many references to it. The famous story about life, death, love, and sex takes place on one day in the life of Leopold Bloom wandering around Dublin. Arish Theatre Company presents an adaptation of Ulysses by the distinguished author and playwright Dermot Bolger in its North American premiere on June 16th at Seven Stages Theatre. Mr. Bolger joins me now via Zoom with the director, Clinton Thornton. Welcome to City Lights. Lovely to speak to you both. Thank you. Dermot, I read that you were approached by Greg Duran, who was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, to adapt the novel for a stage production. Ulysses is considered among the most difficult works to read or understand. The book itself is over 700 pages, told in 18 episodes. How did you decide which parts to dramatize for the stage? Well, Greg had directed a version of The Odyssey that was done by Derek Walcott, and he wanted to follow up with Ulysses. So he phoned me from London, and like any sensible, sane person, I said no. (laughs) And then he came over to Dublin, and we said, let's have lunch. And I, I still said no, because I mean, Joyce's masterpiece is uh, 265,000 words. As you say, it's in 18 episodes that are all different. It actually follows this encyclopedic overview of Dublin in, in one day. And also it ends with uh, Molly, who is Bloom's wife, having this extraordinary soliloquy where she speaks for hours on end about all about her life. And so that's a play in itself. You know, and so I, I said to Greg, no, I won't do it, Greg. Um, but we had a bottle of wine at lunch, which is really unwise of your player. Never have a bottle of wine at lunch. <laughs> As I was explaining to him why I would never 
adapt Ulysses for the stage. I was explaining how you couldn't adapt it for the stage. And the only way you could adapt it was that if you began with Molly's soliloquy at the very, very end, and you had Molly on stage the whole time as Rish have, and then if you had Leopold Bloom in bed beside Molly, dreaming back through his day, then with the logic of a dream, he could move from scene to scene in that way that dreams move very, very quickly. And I began to explain this on a napkin. And somehow when I'd left the restaurant in Gregback, London, I discovered I had signed a contract to adapt it. Oh, my so um, Sammy Khan once asked the great songwriter once asked what came first the music or the lyrics and he said the phone call and uh, <laughs> it was one of those phone calls that uh, I'm I'm glad in retrospect that uh, I took and uh, all these years later uh, Clint and everybody in 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 Arishi is doing it it seems extraordinary Joyce said two years after. Ulysses was finally published after great difficulty. He, he said, will anyone remember this day? And it's extraordinary that this day, Bloomsday, 100 years on, is still being celebrated around the world. And it's wonderful that it's been celebrated in Atlanta. Oh, yes. On the website for the James Joyce Center in Dublin, I read this description of the novel. A carnival of language and linguistic styles and a celebration of existence. Ulysses deals with, but is not limited to, sex, alcohol, adultery, identity in all its forms, life, death, religion, and guilt. For all the layers and complexity of Joyce's text, the narrative itself really isn't that complicated. How does your adaptation enable the audience to understand the story? You mentioned how you sort of rearrange aspects of it. Well, you rearrange aspects of it. I think my ideal audience for this play, and, and, and this play has been... It lived under my bed for 21 years because Joyce was out of copyright, went back into copyright. And then a director in Scotland asked me asked me for the play, which was very difficult as I never hoover under my bed. So I came out covered in clouds of dust with my version <laughs> of Ulysses. And I've since been in the Abbey, our national theatre twice, and has taught China and, and now is in America. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But there's an intimidation around the book because it has such a mystique around it. But So my starting point was that Molly Nora, who was Joyce's wife, who, who felt that he should have stuck to the singing, that he was much better singer than uh, an actual writer. But was Nora, <laughs> Nora was a very practical woman. And Ulysses is a celebration of the day when Joyce met Nora. So that's the day that, that he wanted to capture forever. But she used to complain that Joyce kept her awake laughing at night as he wrote it. And he wrote it in great poverty in Trieste and then in Paris. And as I began to read the book, I began to see it that he got under the skin of people and their prejudices and their views and that the book is actually very, very funny. And the book is also very, very human. And so it was a case of homing in on those human aspects of the book that fascinated me and those characters that fascinated me and hoping, as you always hope as a playwright, that if you focus on the things that interest you as human being, that they'll interest an audience as well. Mm. Clint, the co-founders of Arish have said they think this is their biggest and most important contribution to Atlanta's art scene in the company's 10-year history. How does that inform your approach to directing this production of Ulysses. Not too much that's daunting there. <laughs> yes, it, the challenge is daunting from all angles. You know, that, that's just something I have accepted as I took it on. It is a large production for Arish, but they have risen to the occasion beautifully. And I'm trying to not think about the 100-year anniversary or it opening on Bloomsday or the fact that it's actually Ulysses. <laughs> I'm trying to stay in the moment with it and just bring my full attention and self to each moment of the process. And what I've discovered is that, you know, Dermot's adaptation is so amazing and such an excellent guide, but the, the novel will trap you within 
it and you will never be able to escape it until you just, you know, put it down and walk away. So I'm, I'm trying to not think about all of the, you know, the status of the book and the, and the time period and everything and the reputation of it. I'm trying to do the best I can for Arish and just bring everything I can and it requires everything I have in every moment. So that's about all I can really think about. <laughs> I can imagine. And with what you've just said and Dermot's story about uh, the wonderful humor inherent in the novel, it's unfortunate that the mystique, the intimidation of such an enormous feat in English literature is a turnoff for many. But do you think that after seeing the stage production, is it your hope more people will want to attack the novel? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I really hope that people will move past the mystique of it, move past the reputation of it. And really the humor alone should pull people into it and hopefully then stimulate them to really want to know more about how this was put together, how these characters really interact. There's so much in the book that can't be shown on the stage that just provides so much more depth of all of the characters to get to know them. But I really think that the audience will probably be hopefully pleasantly surprised about how funny it is and how, how engaging and actually how connective it is to the common soul, to the common mundane, everybody's experience. I, I hope that they'll have a way in. I think it is a great democratic book and you have to forget that massive mystique around it. And um, I think audiences will be surprised to find it's a book about themselves and about people they know. And they won't leave the theatre knowing everything about Ulysses any more than I'll ever comprehend the fullness of Joyce's vision, no matter how often I read the novel. But I think they'll be engaged by the human dramas in the adaptation, by Bloom's subtle triumphs, by Molly's all too human contradictions, and by Stephen Dedalus's isolation. And then the eve of leaving the city, he knows he must leave to get intellectual freedom. So I think people will be drawn back to actually once again try and read this superb chronicle of Dublin life, which I think is one of the truest novels of all time. And I'm in awe of the author, and I realise I'm only giving a flavour, but I think that flavour, as particularly as done by Barry Clint and by all the cast and all the people behind this book, and I'm so grateful that it's been done in Atlanta, I think it actually opens up the door again to Ulysses, knocks away the intimidation, and theatre is a great way to open up any literary masterpiece, to just see it dramatised there and suddenly come to life before your eyes and that's what I'm hoping will happen in Atlanta. Oh, I agree. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guests are playwright Dermot Bolger and director Clinton Thornton. Would you tell us about the treatment of Molly's monologue within this production. Dermot has structured it, as he said, beginning with Molly, and then she is throughout the first act, we get pieces of her monologue, and then we have a bit of a break, and then we get you know, a good chunk of the final monologue with her uh, at the very end of the show. It's an interesting challenge because she's there in the bed all the time, and all of this stuff happens all around. And so there are, fascinating connections that come up when trying to stage this. We've got Leo, who is actually in a hotel dining room, reacting to things that are actually happening on the bed next to him, but not in the same room that he's actually in. So there's this wonderful and challenging situation of finding, not only staging the actual scenes that need to happen, but looking at the connections of the marriage at all points throughout the play because every single thing relates back to this couple's marriage and this woman's life and thought process and uh, Leo's 
whole inner monologue that he's working through throughout the day. And so having Molly there, even when she's not actually speaking, gives everything a really personal connection that I find fascinating when trying stage play. You've spent several years as playwright, director, and resident puppeteer at Atlanta's Center for Puppetry Arts. Dermot Bolger's previous adaptations of Ulysses have included puppets. How are they used in this production for Arish? In a variety of ways, we actually have only one actual what you would call puppet that I will allow people to see when they see the show. <laughs> but there are elements in the show that allude to puppetry. I personally didn't want to do too much puppetry in the show. And, and Dermot's adaptation gives you the license. You can use them or you cannot use them. You know, he leaves it pretty open. So I used puppets when absolutely necessary, but I, I came up with some interesting other ways to do some of the other suggested puppetry moments. We do have some shadow work happening on a psych that's at the back of the stage. We have some other things that you might see on mannequins or things like that that are utilized in a puppetry fashion. We actually puppeteer other human beings at one point, I believe. So I tried to use authentic puppetry when needed, but I also tried to expand what that meant and what else could I do rather than, you know, do a literal puppet for some things. And I think it's coming out pretty well. We've talked about how Joyce wrote in many different literary styles throughout the book. Dermot, how do you demonstrate those different styles within the context of the play? I think, again, the fact that Molly is coming in and out of the play punctuates the play. And, and it's very good that Molly's in and out because she's so rich, it's almost like a whiskey that's 60% proof oh. because everything Molly says resonates with life and she's the most vibrant, honest character there. In some ways, you actually have small doses of Molly and they almost like blow the audience away. And then you can come back and suddenly there's a different scene and there's a different style. And so one, one doesn't have all 18 of the styles that, that are there and doesn't have all 18 of the episodes. You've got to hone in on the human contradictions that are there and on what people would enjoy. And live theatre, I, I would love to be in Atlanta City. I remember when this play opened in Dublin in, in the National Theatre, thinking, if I get to the first act and the audience are with me, that would be great, but I've got to get like 20 minutes into the second act and know the audience are still there and it'll be success. And at exactly 20 minutes into the, you know, the first night, into the second act, there wasn't a sound in the theatre. And then suddenly a former world middleweight boxing champion stood up in the back row. The player was being stationed around carrying his father-in-law, who was an elderly Irish actor who had just passed out. Oh, no. <laughs> And, and had to walk across the stage carrying this, this, this man in his arms uh, with the audience not knowing if this was, if this was part of the play or not. And the, and the actors all stopped, stood there. And then suddenly, suddenly ran on and said, is there a doctor in the house? And three members of the audience ran down, one with a stethoscope in their ears already. And that's the thing with live theatre. Every time a play is done, something new can happen. And that's what, what I think. Well, I, I shall be back in Dublin with my false teeth in a glass, enjoying a small Irish whiskey with my <laughs> <regular> <laughs> fire, while these actors go out on the clean direction and, and bravely take on this task of playing all of these characters in this moving around time. But what I love about live theatre, what I love about this being done as a live show, is that Every night you go and see this play, you're seeing a different play because the audience make the play. And that interaction between the audience and the actors is what makes live theatre so wonderfully exciting. Oh, yes. I'm intrigued. What is your whiskey of choice or your favourite whiskeys of choice? Oh, my, my, that, that would be a, a state secret now. I actually, I, I'd be imprisoned by the Irish government <laughs> if I ever gave that away. <laughs> because they might come from Scotland. 
no, 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 no. I I will move on to safer subjects than this. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, almost worthy of dramatization itself was something you mentioned a bit earlier about after you were approached to adapt Ulysses, there were some changes in the copyright laws. What happened with that? Well, what happened was that the copyright law in, well, this doesn't relate to America, but relates more because the, the play was meant to be done in, it was, there was a, a rehearsal reading in Philadelphia and that was meant to be done in a major theatre in London. And the copyright used to be 50 years. So Joyce Yates, the T.H. Lawrence had all gone out of copyright. And then the European Union harmonised copy, copyright to 70 years. So suddenly this play that was in the public domain and the Joyce estate were very, very protective. So this suddenly, this play that was suddenly you know, there for, uh, Joyce in Finnegan's Wake has this phrase, here comes everyone. And suddenly everybody could actually own this play and be part of it. And then the steel jaws of the estate came down and it couldn't be done. And so on the last day before the copyright law changed, I got together 12 of my friends in a theatre in Dublin at nine o'clock in the morning. We wanted to have two men and a dog, but we couldn't get a dog for the audience. And we actually did a reading of the play. And I genuinely believe that would be the last time the play would ever be done. And the first time the play would ever be done. When I read Ulysses first, I was a 13 year old schoolboy. And I thought it was a dirty book and I sort of was a bit disappointed. And then when I read it sort of to adapt it, Bloom was my contemporary. I was 33, he was 35 or whatever. And then when I readapted again, suddenly I'm in awe of his youth and everything else. And every time you come to Ulysses, you relate to it differently depending on what age you are in your life. So that's why it's a book you can revisit and revisit and revisit. And so for me, it is a miracle that this play that I, that, that I did in an empty theatre at nine o'clock in the morning, we figured if it was 10 o'clock, the lawyers might come, but we figured that nine o'clock was too early for anybody <laughs> to notice it was happening. And this play has gone on to China and gone on to Beijing and gone on to Edinburgh and gone on to Dublin. And now it's, it's in America. And I, I just want to thank everybody in the reach because people, it's the actual, the actors who get the applause. But behind the actors, there is a whole crew of people walking around the clock to make this thing happen. And theatre to me is a magical. I, I began as a poet. I've written 14 novels. Theatre was like the torting I began. And for me, I'm still like a child with my nose pressed to the glass, wondering how these people make this magic happen. Mm. This production opens on June 16th, which is celebrated around the world, many places far beyond Dublin, as Bloomsday. What are your thoughts about this celebration? Bloomsday actually began with a friend of mine, Anthony Cronin, as a young man, organised some of Ireland's most famous and most drunken writers, people like <laughs> Flam O'Brien uh, and Patrick Kavanagh, to actually uh, reenact the day. And, and they began with a pub owner and they went to Joyce's Tower and they then had a big row because they had to climb up on the rocks. And, and one of them, who was a big Monaghan farmer, claimed the other was, was raining rocks on him. And in the actual the small bit of footage, they're actually urinating on the rocks. Oh, my. <laughs> Several drinks beforehand. And then they sang songs, and then they got to Davy Bourne's pub, which is halfway in the book, and they never left the pub. So it, the, the first Bloomsday was very memorable, but was very, very chaotic. So all the Bloomsday since have been less chaotic. But I, I love that the book is honoured and the book is celebrated. And I think it's a really democratic book because... Everybody can be part of this book and and there are no minor characters. And so I I think it's lovely that, and I think that it was published in the same year as Ireland came into being as an independent state. And sometimes it was a a blueprint. He's a different type of patriot than the patriots that we actually had. He's actually somebody who is, he says in a great line, he says, I resent violence of intolerance in any shape or form. A revolution must come under due installments plan. 
And that is a, a line that I'd love to have carved on my tombstone. And I think that he's a sort of quiet patriot who gets on with doing things on the due installment plan and change comes incrementally and he makes that change happen. And I think that that was what Joyce is about as well, of just allowing everybody to be themselves. Playwright Dermot Bolger and director Clinton Thornton. Arish Theatre's production of Ulysses is at seven stages this Thursday through June 26th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear how Underground Atlanta's new exhibition, Digital, explores the future of how we view art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The recently renovated underground Atlanta is now home to the world's largest digital art gallery. Digital, although cleverly it is spelled D-I-G-A-T-L. The exhibition opened in April and is on view through June 30th. Inside, visitors are dazzled by digital imagery with large-scale projections, interactive installations, animation, and virtual reality immersion. Curator Chris Pilcher joins me now via Zoom with Two of the artists featured in the exhibition, Neil Shivdasani and Katie McManus, a.k.a. Lil Sushi, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lois. Thanks for having us. Chris, while the term NFT is becoming more familiar lately, I think we could all benefit from some discussion of what NFTs mean within the visual art world. Would you give us a little background? Sure, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. So essentially what this is, if you think about a painting and how when the painting is finished, the artist will sign their signature uh, in the corner, using an NFT is sort of the same as digitally signing your work. And you do this on the blockchain which creates an infallible record that can be traced in the future and is on public view. So this allows artists who are working in digital mediums, although NFTs are being used in sort of physical spaces all over the world and for these new and exciting things, but specifically for digital artists, it allows them a way to prove ownership of their work, prove that it is an original, and then to also monetize that work in the future. Ah. Digital is currently the world's largest digital gallery. Tell us more about what visitors can see and do inside the exhibition. So digital is over 30,000 square feet. It takes up an entire city block at Underground Atlanta. It is in the same space that hosted the Art of Banksy exhibition a little bit earlier this year. Inside of the exhibition, we have large scale projections, 
We have these interactive installations that are influenced by the viewer's movements and presence in the space. We have virtual reality. And then we have an entire section that is devoted to NFT artworks. These pieces can be purchased off the wall, so to say. Users can scan a QR code next to the piece with their phone. And as long as they have a few things set up, they can purchase these pieces with cryptocurrency. Hmm. 100% of the proceeds go back to the artist who created the work. Digital doesn't take any sort of percentage or commission from that. In addition to this, we also host weekly and bi-weekly events. We have a lot of really interesting things coming out. We have an event called The Lag, which is a video gaming competition and music production showcase. Uh, we have some of the top names in electronic music coming through on the weekends. We have also a sort of wellness program. We have a series of events called Amador, who are from a person named Malik Khalid, and uh, it's yoga sort of set to uh, house music and electronic music. And another event called 808 and Meditate, which allows people to wear these sort of haptic feedback vests. They're vests that contain speakers and vibration motors. They all sync together and you can have this group meditation where everybody is on the same frequency, so to speak. Oh my. So there's lots of eye-popping video and imagery. Can you tell us a bit more about the virtual reality component? Sure. So we have three different virtual reality pieces in the exhibit. They actually come from really talented artists all over the world. The exhibit itself has 75 artists who are from places as far away as Okinawa, Japan. And then of course, local artists. These specific virtual reality pieces are sort of really profound experiences. There is one from an artist named Violet Forest, and it's called Sparkle Hands. It gives you sparkly hands in the real world that create these really amazing trails and allow you to interact with the real world and, and make it a more beautiful place through, through the power of this virtual headset. Then we have two other pieces. One is from an artist named Mosin Hazrati, and the other one is from an artist based in Vienna, named Cenk Guzelis. Cenk's piece is a multi-user experience that allows each person in a virtual reality headset to see the other person as a virtual avatar and then have this sort of dance together, this choreographed mm -hmm. dance piece. Modan Hazrati is a really well-known artist in the virtual reality and digital art worlds. He showcases mostly in Europe a lot of the really large festivals there. And he's created this psychedelic wonderland sort of environment that you can explore. The digital experience at Underground ends June 30th, but digital art and NFTs are clearly on the rise. Will there be future digital art galleries at Underground Atlanta or maybe even a permanent fixture? Absolutely. So this current exhibition will be over on June 30th, and then we will begin curating another exhibit, which will be a digital-based exhibit. But the digital gallery is not the only thing that's happening at Underground Atlanta with, in terms of creative technology. We recently partnered with the Fulton County Arts Council to open the Public Art Futures Lab. The Public Art Futures Lab is this physical space that allows local artists to experiment and educate and experience the role of technology and its sort of intersection with public art. It's a place that can sort of reduce the barrier of entry to working with these technologies and allow Atlanta artists to not only become educated, but to start participating in this new emerging medium. With this Public Art Futures Lab, the Digital Art Gallery, and then just a block or two away, we have the Creative Media Industries Institute of Georgia State. Downtown Atlanta has become a center for creative technology and digital artists. Very exciting. Neil, would you tell us about the artwork you have on exhibition in digital? Yeah, absolutely. I have, I think, three individual pieces as well as one screen that's showing in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 from a series of related pieces. And all of my art is made with code. 
So I write code that generates visuals. And the idea is that every time you run the code, the visual it generates should be noticeably different, but also recognizably the same, if that makes sense. It, it generates things that are in the same family. Is this what you refer to as generative digital art? I was hoping you'd define that. Yeah, yeah, that is that is what generative digital art is. So generative art has a long history. And the idea is simply that the artist creates a system in which some other force, whether it's nature, gravity, light, heat, that plays a role in the outcome. Generative digital art is generally when artists use code and they write essentially a concept, but random processes determine the specifics of each output. So you could run the code a thousand times and see different outputs every time. Okay, this brings to mind jazz improvisation for me, or even longer back in music, in the Baroque era, before music was written out and soloists got to improvise. Is this the visual equivalent? You know, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think, in a way, what they, what they share in common is that you're relinquishing some amount of control, and you have to be comfortable with that. You have to be comfortable with the idea that you're not in total control of what you're about to artistically create with something else, which, you know, in jazz, that's another musician. But in this scenario, it's just a random process that some computer's running. You use beautiful colors that form eye-catching gestures, and they seem to behave just on the outskirts of pattern and predictability. Is it fair to say that the look of much of your artwork seems to exist between pattern and randomness? Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a very keen observation. What I like to play around with is this idea that if you have a predictable system and you disrupt it in just a minor way, you'll actually get like a somewhat organized emergent behavior that is that's not what you might expect. Wow. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with digital curator Chris Pilcher and artists Katie McManus and Neil Shivdasani. Katie, your digital artwork is stunning. It's kaleidoscopic. It suggests jewels and metal and architectural features, all bursting into what appear to be never-ending patterns. And your choice of colors is dreamlike. Would you describe your installation in this exhibition? Well, first of all, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I would describe my art style as surreal futurism. Also, I like aspects of like the uncanny valley. So things that look like you've been there before, but something about them is a little bit off. I also derive a lot of inspiration from architecture and vegetation in general. And anime is very important to me so you can see kind of with like the bloom and color that I use where that is inspired from as well. Is it possible for you to tell us how you create these animations and designs? Most of the time honestly a lot of it comes from dreams that I've had or even just like going through your day-to-day -day life and seeing a space it could be like an alleyway or it could be somewhere in the park and kind of reimagining it as if people weren't living there anymore. So it looks like a lived in space that has been taken over by nature. Or if I'm doing something more futuristic, it's like say a train station that is in the middle of space. So it adds this element of something very familiar with something that feels almost like unseen or untouchable. Mm. Neil and Katie, do you present and sell your work as NFTs? Yeah, I have before. It's not necessarily what motivates me. Uh, you know, the art is what motivates me, but I have sold my art as NFTs. 
Katie? I have actually not sold my art as NFTs as of yet. I would probably want to work with someone very specific or have some sort of tangible experience, more tangible experience before I delve into that world. But most of the time it's just, I work with local artists, whether that be like musical artists or other digital artists, and we will, you know, work together to sell our art. Sometimes I sell prints, but. Because oh, I was wondering about how the new technology has changed or helped or hindered your career. And also thinking about what Chris said early on, that the artists in this exhibition are getting 100% of the proceeds. That would be unthinkable with a commercial gallery. Typically, an artist gets, what, 50%? Yeah, probably if that. I think that NFTs and being able to sell your digital artworks is definitely beneficial to artists because it can be somewhat hard, especially in the traditional art world, because people do want something that's like physically tangible or they can see has been made physically. And so I think by having NFTs, it does not only create authenticity within people's artworks, but it does give them a platform to sell it, which I think is really important. So one thing about using these new digital mediums and these new techniques like uh, NFTs and tying your work to the blockchain, it really helps us kind of upend the traditional art gallery model and put really a lot of the power for selling your work and ownership of your work back into the hands of the artists. And while this is currently just like for digital artists, eventually this will have repercussions throughout the entire world in uh, creators of any type and people who um, have products for sale will be able to just kind of take that power into their own hands. So for all of you, what are your thoughts on the future of digital exhibitions? Do you think more digital art will be shown in galleries worldwide? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, you know, throughout my entire life, there's just been this slow march towards the commoditization of all artistic output where people, you know, artists, whether they're digital, you know, visual artists or musicians or what have you, there's kind of this expectation that you create your work and you post it on the internet for free and your work existing on the internet enables some, some conglomerate to monetize it. And I think that we're, you know, who knows what form it'll take, but we're, we're entering a, an era in which artists can benefit from this, this relationship, you know, you know, we can still move forward in, in like online culture and digital culture, but reclaim some of that power for artists. Katie, Chris. I definitely think that there will be more. I mean, you can see it now that there's more and more digital artworks being displayed, even in museums that I've been to, they'll have, you know, VR or AR elements, even with like, uh, I don't know if you know who Team Labs is in Japan, they have elements where it's like projectors on the wall and it's interactive. And I just see it delving more and more into a digital art space. And honestly, I think that's really amazing because mm. there's a lot of elements within digital art, adding animation or adding like a soundscape brings more emotion to art sometimes, I believe, especially if you're trying to invoke a particular emotion. So I definitely hope and do see it moving forward towards more digital art spaces. One thing that I think is great about digital is we are able to take works that uh, traditionally would exist on a screen or inside of a headset and put them on a wall in a gallery context that people are more familiar with. And it elevates that work from more than just like a JPEG or a digital image to fine art, something that is more easily relatable for people who may not be involved in creating in these mediums or um, might not be quite as involved with technology. 
Another thing I think that's exciting about working with these new mediums like virtual reality and in the future, things like augmented reality and holograms is that uh, art won't be just confined to an institution or a wall or a space. Art will be embedded in the world around you. And digital artists like Neil and Katie and myself, we're the ones who are like laying the groundwork, the framework for that new sort of digital renaissance. And it's going to have profound implications for the rest of society and for the world in general. Curator Chris Pilcher with artists Katie McManus and Neil Shivdasami. They're part of Underground Atlanta's digital art exhibition and gallery, Digital. That's D-I-G-A-T-L, on view through June 30th. You can find out more on our website, wabe.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Dawn Tremble, and I am an abstract expressionist artist. My medium of choice is watercolor, and what I love about watercolor is that through the layering process of the way that the paintings can be built, the effect can be quiet and ethereal with soft layers of color in one moment. And in another moment, they can be bold and intense um, with color. And I love that juxtaposition. My collectors have commented that um, my paintings are calming, serene, and beautiful, which which is really nice. While I've always been interested in art, I was trained as an interior designer and architect. So for a number of years, I worked in corporate interior design firms. And pretty recently, I discovered I just don't like sitting behind a desk. So I started painting pretty recently, maybe in the last two to three years. And I would post on Instagram and the response that I would get was very encouraging. Um, and so I continued, I continued to paint. I am inspired by lots of things, but mainly I'm inspired by design and my faith. With design, I go back to my background, how I was trained, and I am still very interested in exploring the ideas of space, light, and composition in my work. And with my faith, um, gosh, I find it inexhaustible, the hope and the beauty that is inherent with my faith. And that provides another level of inspiration. It's funny because I came to Atlanta for an interior design job. But in that span of time, um, what I saw around the city of Atlanta, the murals, and gosh, I remember a few years ago, living walls just the murals around the city, the colors, the boldness, the messages. I really enjoyed being able to experience art through moving through the city. During the pandemic, I know that my kids and I would ride around Atlanta and see a lot of the murals. So for quite a bit of time, that is how we experienced art in Atlanta, which was pretty cool. Um, but I'm very excited to see and get back into galleries to to see what other artists are doing and to be inspired that way from the informal places like, you know, the art along the belt line to your more formal galleries. I love to document the process of new works and how those are formed into collections. And I document that specific process on Instagram. And then I have a website, which is dawnmtrimbleart.com. And starting mid-June, I'll have a few original pieces at Westside Market here in Atlanta, Georgia. Abstract expressionist Dawn Trimble and our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts. More information about Trimble's work is on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. Atlanta-based hip-hop group Goody Mob is performing at a free Juneteenth concert this Saturday, part of the second annual Butte Noir Festival in Old Fourth Ward Park. Camille Rose, owner of the Black Beauty brand, is honoring the holiday with a day of festivities featuring art, entertainment, food, and music. A runway show curated by Atlanta fashion designers is part of the programming, where looks from everyday wear to couture will be on display. Celebrations begin at noon at the Skate Park and Beltline in the Old Fourth Ward. The event is open to the public, and VIP packages are also available online. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.